You know something is wrong. You can see it all around you. You're wondering how things got to this point. Good is called evil and evil is called good. You want to truly know why we got to the brink of the abyss. Can't just be told. You must see it for yourself. I'm Scipio Eruditus, and this is Dispatches from Reality. Hello, hello, my dispatchers and listeners. I am your author, your narrator, your host, Scipio Eruditus, and this is another audio edition of Dispatches from Reality. Today's topic dovetails uh, pretty seamlessly with the last episode on central bank digital currencies, and uh, we're going to be talking about finance again and uh, economics because it is just an issue that really can't be stressed enough. If you don't think economics is important, then you're just not paying attention to the pain and the suffering that is unfolding across America. Uh, the price of gas doubling, uh, you know, prices of foods increasing 9 10% a month. And these are the numbers that the govern- government will admit to. So Lord only knows what the true numbers are, right? I mean, if you go by earlier previous previous uh, inflation statistics our real inflation number is closer to 20% month to month we are in the throes still of a ongoing economic a planned economic destruction uh, there is no accidents here no accidents we are well beyond the realm of incompetence if they were merely incompetent we would get they would get some things eventually wrong in our favor. But when they continually, only ever, make decisions that end up with the people having less buying power, less freedom, less mobility, right? Did you think that you're going to be, you're going to own nothing and be happy? That wasn't just a, a catchy marketing gimmick. It's a, uh, this is their prophecy for what they want. And so... How did we get to this point? How is this even possible? Well, this has only been possible and only has been possible because of the power and the role of central banking and particularly fiat currency. That is, currency that is controlled by a central bank and created out of thin air, essentially. And so, uh, this really noxious style of economics is a rather modern phenomenon. It is only several hundred years old, and the amount of damage that this group of people, uh, very wealthy, influential, dynastic families, the amount of damage that has been done to our world by this, this international clique is truly impossible to understate and to well, you know, once you begin to wrap your mind around the forces that we are truly arrayed against, right? It is, you have to follow the money. You have to follow the money. And so, the essay that, you know, I'm going to be reading from today is on this topic of usury, which is interest. And so, if you're not, you know, if the readers or the listeners are not familiar, 
the Federal Reserve is not a government entity. It is a private entity. And the federal government buys dollars from the Federal Reserve with interest. So just by its very nature and the way this system is set up, you are going to end up in crushing debt. It is literally impossible for you to be able to ever get yourself out of this hole. Every fiat currency system is on a finite timeline. There's only so much time that this system, I mean, it is a ticking time bomb. This is just the math. Uh, this is, right? The math works out no other way. Eventually, you will not be able to produce to keep up with the interests. And that's assuming you're still within, you know, uh, you have any semblance of fiscal responsibility, which we, you know, we threw that away a long time ago. I mean, we're adding a trillion dollars to the deficit every quarter now. I mean, the idea of our debt even reaching a trillion dollars a couple of decades ago had people like Ron Paul, I mean, sounding the alarm, saying the Titanic was going down. And I mean, he's not wrong. Again, just look at the buying power that has been degraded and, you know, stolen from us during this time period. It is, uh, that's precisely what it is. By printing these dollars, they are stealing from us. Your time becomes less valuable. Your money becomes less valuable. Your buying power becomes less valuable. It is one of the most insidious forms of warfare. It's one of the oldest forms of warfare and societal control, as we're going to explore in this essay. And so I'm going to be doing a, uh, you know, adding a little uh, new aspect to the show here because they're just. Really, you guys need to check out, if you aren't already, uh, the Dispatches from Reality Substack at dfreality.substack.com. And again, check the show notes for links to all these articles. And it is a really a wealth of knowledge and information. And so, yeah, there are, I always have a bunch of books attached to these articles. So I figured, you know, I'll throw in a little book review uh, at the end here. And, you know, listeners can tell me in the... In the show, leave a little Q&A or in the comments section whether you uh, enjoy the uh, book reviews, if you'd like that to continue. So uh, the first book here that we have for this article, uh, probably one of the best books I've ever read. Uh, it was a, really an incredible look at church history and uh, usury. And so uh, that is Usury in Christendom, The Mortal Sin That Was and Now Is Not by Michael A. Hoffman II. I'm a big fan of Michael A. Hoffman's work. He has a ton of good work on, you know, the church history, the occult, uh, ritual abuse and mind control. He has really just written on a, a ton of subjects, uh, you know, the history of Judaism. It is a, a he's a very, very uh, learned uh, historian. And even though, you know, he is a Catholic, but I don't hold that against him. <laughs> he is a... Uh, Truly one of the best books I've ever read, right? But he's willing to admit, you know, that the Catholic Church has been corrupted here for a very long time. And, you know, he pinpoints usury, and I, I think it's pretty hard to argue with, you know, when you look at the kind of the timeline of, of events there with the, uh, the Borgia Popes, or the Medici, uh, Medici Popes, rather, and the changing of those laws within Christendom, although there had been lax laws, you know, in regards to allowing that kind of behavior within Christian kingdoms for a very long time. 
but highly recommend User in Christendom by Michael A. Hoffman. Uh, if you read no other books uh, from you know this essay, I highly recommend that one. Uh, and then another good one here, right? Babylon's Banksters, The Alchemy of Deep Physics, High Finance, and Ancient Religion by Joseph P. Farrell. Now, uh, Mr. Farrell has some kind of interesting theories. I think they're somewhat tenuous. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really sold on some of the aspects of it. And nonetheless, uh, they are very interesting theories. And these, uh, you know, uh, his source documentation and his uh, historical worksmanship is uh, really bar none. And within some of the uh, alternative history books that I've ever read, uh, some of the best, uh, you know, sourcing of these claims uh it's really just uh some fascinating source documents he's been able to get a hold of and if nothing else just the, the history of some of this stuff monetarily speaking it is very fascinating and so you may not agree with the entire picture that he puts together i don't uh, agree necessarily but the individual data points that he brings up are you know very very compelling nonetheless uh, another one we have here is uh, silent weapons for quiet wars an introduction programming manual. Now, the author of this document is a, uh, a technical military document. It is unknown. Kind of the history and how this document was discovered is pretty interesting. Um, but I do think it is legitimate uh, precisely because of the fact that we can see it being played out in our current world as we speak and has been for a very long time. Uh, it just mirrors too, too perfectly what's going on here. And so... It is an invaluable resource to kind of understand the nature of silent weapons, which usury is one of the oldest and one of the most powerful. So uh, the other book that I really, really enjoyed um, was The End of Alchemy, Money, Banking, and the Future of the Global Economy by Mervyn King. Now, this is a, uh, one of the most interesting facts about this book is really how honest Mervyn King is as a central banker himself. And so the book is still, it's very much a limited hangout, right? Because it's the, the solution here is not to get rid of central banking. The solution is, oh, well, we just need to do the right version. You know, we just, we just need to stop with uh, some of this stuff, you know, or some of the really crazy stuff, you know, uh, like, dude, it's uh, having these kinds of powers centralized into one location. That's the crazy stuff, right? <laughs> Not, we just need to tinker around the edges, you know. But nonetheless, it's a, uh, a very, very brutally honest uh, take and look at the alchemical nature of usury, of fiat currency, and how this stuff is just inherently unnatural. And this is something that economists have understood for a very long time uh, even you know into the 20th century it's really only within the, the last 100 years that we have kind of thrown these fundamental assumptions out the window and we can see the disastrous consequences of such so uh, the end of alchemy by mervyn king uh, great book though uh, just keep in mind yeah he is he's definitely writing from a perspective uh, that I don't necessarily uh, fully agree with. And so the last, uh, or excuse me, second to last one here, we have The Alchemy of Finance, Reading the Mind of the Market by George Soros. Now, the title is a little bit, uh, you know, it's, it's a little eye-catchy. He doesn't get into as much of the, you know, the magical nature and the alchemical nature of high finance, uh, but 
It is nonetheless a very, you know, interesting peer into Soros's mind and how he views uh, some of these economic topics. So this is written, uh, uh, this was written in the late 1980s, I believe, right? So it's a, uh, it's very interesting before he, he started getting some of this, you know, big, uh, you know, fame and a lot of play within the media. Uh, it is a, it's a bit of a dry book, but for those who are interested in these, uh, these topics, uh, definitely an invaluable one. And then lastly, Alchemy in Kabbalah by Gershom Sholem. Uh, this was a, really one of the more interesting books on this list. And so it's a, a definitely a niche that you're looking for there, right? But the interplay between these different mystery cults and so many of the similarities, right, which alchemy and Kabbalah uh, both are, it is really, the, the more you dig into these occult topics, the more it just becomes undeniable that there is clearly a, uh, there is a central theme, there's a central myth that all of these cults are drawing from, right? The mother's milk, as you were. And so, that of course being mystery Babylon. And so it's just very fascinating the more and more that I, you know, the more and more that, you know, really that anyone, if you study these topics and these, you know, really the occult history and how closely these groups have worked together and so much of the fundamental assumptions, even the symbology that they are using is uh, really interchangeable. And so alchemy and Kabbalah is a, a very, very interesting look at these, these two, uh, you know, some would think maybe, uh, oh, right, what does alchemy and Kabbalah have to do with each other? I mean, there are some striking similarities uh, between them, particularly, you know, in this idea of purification and ascending, right, and uh, reaching, attaining this, this final form, this final power. And so it is, you know, be on guard, obviously, right? I, I don't advocate or uh, support <laughs> any of this stuff. Uh, you know, just because I put a book on the list or I'm recommending it, right, is, is not an endorsement of its viewpoint. But uh, the information provided is a, a very, very uh, revealing look at the ties between these really two ancient mystery denominations, if you were. And so, yeah, those are the books. And of course, there's a great deal of scripture in this. And the Holy Bible is included, uh, my preference, the 1611. Uh, it does take a little bit of getting used to. Some of the language is uh, very archaic, the spellings. And it's just, it's worth it. It's worth it trying to learn some of the old English and to get, back, you know, to get into uh, really what is a, a work of art. Uh, the original versions of the 1611, if you've never seen them, I mean, each page handcrafted it's a it's an incredible work of art no matter whether you believe or not uh, i highly encourage those listeners and dispatchers to uh find yourself a copy even if it's a digital version uh a facsimile of the 1611 it is a an heirloom piece that you will not regret picking up and so without further ado i'm going to be reading from my July 11th, 2023 article, Alchemical Weapons for Economic Wars. Quote, In thee have they taken gifts to shed blood. Thou hast taken usury and increase. 
and thou hast greedily gained of thy neighbors by extortion, and hast forgotten me, saith the Lord God. Ezekiel chapter 22 verse 12. End quote. Usury is a weapon, a pernicious and unrivaled weapon, capable of bringing even the mightiest foe to heel. Defining economic minds of the ages, from Aristotle, Adam Smith, Karl Marx, to John Maynard Keynes, all viewed usury as a major vice, if not an outright evil. It is a slow drip of venom in a civilization's veins, inevitably bringing the borrower low in its alchemical grasp. Our enemy is keenly aware of this powerful weapon, particularly given that the mystery religion's temples, the pyramids and ziggurats, also served as banks and mints in which these ancient rites were practiced. This is true of the idolatrous rabbis as well. See the Gospel of John chapter 8, verse 20. The modern financial system is no less steeped in these philosophic and alchemical realities as some of the most stored economists in history will attest to. Fiat currency is quite literally the philosopher's stone made real. It is the ability to create something of value out of nothing. Long before our formerly Christian societies ever redefined what a woman was, what a life was, or what a marriage was, we redefined what sound money was. Before we rejected God's commandment on how our family should be ordered, we rejected his commandments on how we should order our economies. Aristotle defined economics quite simply as the management of a household. Economies on the micro and macro scale are created in order to facilitate the thriving of the family unit. Any financial system that loses sight of this fact will inevitably end in its people's moral and financial ruin. The poet Ezra Pound incisively sums up the insidious nature of this threat. Quote, Of all of usury's assaults on definition, the last and consummate is its erasure of its proper name. End quote. Let us refer to Webster's Dictionary to see for ourselves how radically this world has evolved in the last 110 years. Usury 1. A premium or increase paid or stipulated to be paid for a loan as of money. Interest. Or two, the practice of taking interest, from Webster's Dictionary, 1913. The 1913 definition is quite explicit. Usury is taking any amount of interest on a loan. Compare that to today's definition, on the other hand. Quote, Usury. 1. The lending of money with an interest charge for its use, especially the lending of money at exorbitant interest rates. 2. An unconscionable or exorbitant rate, or amount of interest specifically, interest in excess of a legal rate charged to a borrower for the use of money. Merriam-Webster Dictionary, 2023. End quote. While the distinction may seem trivial, it is utterly vital to recognize. Today's dictionaries define usury as a predatory loan only, as prescribed by whatever is legally permissible. Now, this is in stark contrast to the historical and biblical understanding of the term. The dictionary is not the only culprit guilty of engaging in this Luciferian doublespeak, but the church is no less guilty of this crime. Modernist Bible translations have added unto the word, substantially changing the meaning of these and many other verses. And the 1984 edition of the NIV 
Ezekiel 18.8 states, He does not lend at usury or take excessive interest. Slowly but surely, century by century, brick by brick, the reality of our language has been methodically subverted with disastrous consequences for mankind. Holy Scripture is exceedingly clear on the economic reality of usury and its applications vis-a-vis subjugation. Deuteronomy chapter 23 verses 19 through 20 state, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury. Unto a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury. End quote. Of note here is the word for stranger in verse 20, or nukri in Hebrew, meaning a foreigner or alien. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, Nukri is used to describe the foreign women that led King Solomon astray. And in Ezra chapter 10, to describe the women that the Israelites were ordered to divorce upon their return to Jerusalem. The Nukri is therefore used here in Deuteronomy 23.20 to denote a specific class of foreigner, pagan nations that the Israelites were forbidden from marrying, many of whom they were commanded to wage war upon. There are 20 verses in the Holy Bible that deal with usury in some form with every single verse painting the practice of economic sorcery in an exceedingly negative light. The prophet Ezekiel goes so far as to compare usury to murder, likening the practice with the shedding of blood. The most pertinent verses to this essay, from both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are included below. Quote, Exodus 22:25. If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. Ezekiel 18.8 He that hath not given forth upon usury, neither hath taken any increase, that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man. Ezekiel 18.13 Hath given forth upon usury, and hath taken increase, shall he then live? He shall not live. He hath done all these abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon him. Leviticus 25.37 Thou shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. Luke 6.35 But love ye your enemies, and do good, and lend, hoping for nothing again. And your reward shall be great, and ye shall be the children of the highest for he is kind unto the unthankful and to the evil. The word is quite clear, that usury is to be forbidden amongst those who you would call your brother, as it is a tool reserved for hostile alien nations. The Nicene Creed forbade usury as well, an edict that was enforced within Christendom for over a millennia. In Dante's Inferno, usurers are seen in the lowest reaches of hell where they dwell in, quote, the horrible excess of stench, end quote, with sodomites. The pairing of these sins would have been immediately understood by Dante's audience. Both sins are an affront against nature and against reality, a rejection of God's ordained order. Quote, When asked what is to be said of making profit by usury, Cato replied, What is to be said of making profit by murder? Cicero, Diophysis. End quote. 
Perhaps the biblical story that best illustrates the danger and potency of usury is seen in chapter 5 of the book of Nehemiah. Quote, And there was a great cry of the people and of their wives against their brethren the Jews. For there were that said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many, that therefore we take up corn for them, that we may eat and live. Some also there were that said, We have mortgaged our lands, vineyards, and houses, that we might buy corn because of the dearth. There were also that said, We have borrowed money for the king's tribute, and that upon our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children as their children. And lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters to be servants, and some of our daughters are brought unto bondage already. Neither is it in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. And I was very angry when I heard their cry and their words. Then I consulted with myself, and I rebuked the nobles and the rulers, and said unto them, Ye exact usury every one of his brother. And I set a great assembly against them. And I said unto them, We after our ability have redeemed our brethren the Jews, which were sold unto the heathen. And will ye even sell your brethren, or shall they be sold unto us? Then held they their peace, and found nothing to answer. Also I said, It is not good that ye do. Ought ye not to walk in the fear of our God, because of the reproach of the heathen our enemies? I likewise and my brethren and my servants might exact of them money and corn. I pray you, let us leave off this usury. Restore, I pray you, to them even this day their lands, their vineyards, their olive yards, and their houses. Also the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil that ye exact of them. And then said they, We will restore them, and will require nothing of them. So will we do as thou sayest. And then I called the priests, and took an oath of them, that they should do according to this promise. Also I shook my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house, and from his labor, that performeth not this promise, even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the congregation said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did according to this promise. Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 13. End quote. So what was this excessive or predatory interest rate charged by the priests that so righteously angered Nehemiah? As verse 11 clearly states, it was the hundredth part of the money and of the corn, the wine, and the oil. Or in other words, 1%. All it took was 1%, and the Israelites were in bondage all over again. That is the potency of usury, for it is nothing less than an alchemical weapon of mass enslavement. The Lord's zealous hatred of usury is not confined simply to the Old Testament. One of the most striking stories in the Gospels is the tales of Christ expelling the money changers and merchants from the temple. During Passover week, these vendors sold oxen and other livestock necessary for the ritual sacrifices of atonement, eventually becoming so brazen as to set up shop on the ground to the temple itself. In order to pay the temple taxes, in order to pay the temple taxes, idolatrous Roman coins were exchanged for Tyrian shekels at a large markup, a portion of which would have gone to the high priest. This event is recorded not once but twice within the first week of Christ's earthly ministry, seen in John chapter 2, verses 13 through 16, and in the last week of his ministry, D. 
detailed in Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17, Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19, and Luke chapter 29, verses 45 through 48. These two events serve as a pivotal capstones, Christ's public ministry, and provide further evidence of the importance of these economic matters to our Lord. The significance of these passages and their timing within Jesus Christ's ministry is really impossible to understate. After performing his first miracle at the wedding at Cana, Christ's first public act as the Messiah was the cleansing of the temple. And during the last week of his ministry, he again performs his righteous act of zealous and holy fury, an event that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree directly led to Christ's death. In a theocratic society, attacking the legitimacy of the priestly class was an attack on the state, its religion, and its financial system all in one fell swoop. To his enemies, these affronts were not just religious in nature, but they were deeply political. Christ's enemies, then, are still his enemies today. The money changers and the mystery religion enabling them. Quote, The bank hath benefit of interest on all monies which it creates out of nothing. William Patterson, founder of the Bank of England. End quote. Perhaps you think my charge of usury as a form of alchemy or financial witchcraft is overblown. Let us first properly define alchemy, which was, quote, in many ways a precursor to modern chemistry, and was generally considered to be the science of turning one thing into another thing, through physical and chemical processes, and its literal interpretation, or refining something, like the soul, into a better or more perfect version, in its metaphorical usage, end quote. This medieval philosophy, popularized and spread by the arch-alchemist Nicolas Flamel, was born out of the Sufi mystical teachings of Alchemia. Of course, Alchemia was itself just a derivative of the teachings of the mystery schools of Babylon, Phoenicia, and Egypt. As such, medieval alchemy is simply the reuniting of these divergent Eastern and Western occult traditions. Its practitioners' goals were primarily to turn base metals into gold as well as the creation of a universal cure-all in order to discover the secret of immortality. In this manner, fiat currency and usury fulfill the alchemist's goal of creating something out of nothing, transmuting worthless matter into a valuable commodity. No product has been created, no material has been produced, and yet their money increases. It is an attention-grabbing claim, to be sure, but nevertheless one supported by the facts. The ties between the mystery cult and global finance could not be more clear. Alexander Del Mar's seminal work, The History of Monetary Systems, details the intertwining of finance and religion in the ancient world. Quote, The sacerdotal character conferred upon gold, or the coinage of gold, was not a novelty of the Julian constitution of Rome. Rather, was it an ancient myth put to new political use? A similar belief is to be noticed among the ancient Greeks, whose coinages, except during the Republican era, were conducted in the temples and under the supervision of priests. Upon these issues were stamped the symbols and religion of the state, as only the priest could, could correctly illustrate these mysteries of their own creation, the coinage, at least that of the more precious pieces naturally became a prerogative of their order. The archaic Chinese and Indian, as well as the early Greek coins, 
were often marked with emblems, which in the former cases are supposed to be, and in the latter cases are known to be, religious. The mints were in the temples, and the priests monopolized, or tried to monopolize, the secrets of metallurgy. This custom may have arisen either from the cupidity of the priesthood to reap the profits of coinage, or solicitude on the part of the sovereign to prevent counterfeiting or to render it more heinous. End quote. This metallurgy that Delmar describes is quite literally alchemy, the end result of the seven stages of alchemical transformation. Fiat currency is the true philosopher's stone, a means to create value ex nihilo, by extension to control reality itself. The money changers were the priests, and the priests were the money changers. Modern economists and financial titans, such as George Soros, continued to attest to the inseparable ties between alchemy and the modern financial system. John Maynard Keynes, the godfather of modern finance, was a devotee of the prolific occultist Isaac Newton, who we have discussed at further length in BC2, Scientism versus Science. Referring to Newton as, quote, the last of the magicians, the last of the Babylonians and Sumerians, end quote. Keynes purchased Newton's entire collection of esoteric and religious works at auction, texts that Keynes admitted had a large impact upon his economic philosophy. Keynes understood the alchemical power of usury and fiat currency well, later warning Americans that by, quote, a continuing process of inflation, government can confiscate secretly and unobserved an important part of the wealth of their citizens, end quote. This truth has painfully played out over the last century, as the U.S. dollar has declined 97% since the institution of the Federal Reserve cartel. It is not just economists or historians who equate modern finance with alchemy. Central bankers will attest to this reality as well. Baron Mervyn Alistair King served as the governor of the Bank of England from 2003 to 2013, steering British economic policy during the height of the 07-08 financial crisis. As the head of one of the premier central banks in the world, King's expert opinion further validates this startling yet undeniable economic fact. Quote, The idea that paper money could replace intrinsically valuable gold and precious metals and that banks could take secure short-term deposits and transform them into long-term risky investments came into its own with the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century. It was both revolutionary and immensely seductive. It was, in fact, financial alchemy, the creation of extraordinary financial powers that defy reality and common sense. Pursuit of this monetary elixir has brought a series of economic disasters, from hyperinflations to banking collapses, from the end of alchemy, end quote. These are sobering words coming from one of the most powerful bankers of the 21st century. As I've covered in the Anatomy of Revolution series, it is no mere accident that the rise of central banks and Freemasonry dovetail perfectly. Baron King's book provides a rare and unique window into the arcane world of modern finance. Throughout it, he proffers the same thesis that I submit to you. Fiat currency via usury is alchemy. Usury, fiat currency, modern monetary theory. What we are truly describing are not simply financial tools, 
but fundamentally alchemical ones. Through sheer force of will, base materials and scraps of paper are transformed into priceless assets. What's even more perverse than that? The money continues to multiply. Such a chain of events can simply not be described as a natural process. It is inherently an unnatural one, and as we now know, a magical one as well. To the keen observer, the interlocked nature of the mystery religion, international finance, usury, and alchemy could not be more evident. That its corrosive effect upon our civilization continues apace, eating away at the morality and dignity of our people, cannot be denied. Quote, but the modern economy is a continuation of alchemy by other means. Hans Binswanger, Swiss economist. End quote. Weapons come in many shapes and in many forms. Just because it doesn't have a sharp edge doesn't mean it can't harm you. For crushing debts will surely rob a man as effectively as any bandit. These alchemical weapons are doubly effective, not only for their potency, but their surreptitious nature as well. Since the vast majority of the unwitting public does not perceive usury as a weapon, that they do not even realize they are under attack. The weapons that the moneyed powers have arrayed against us are no less lethal than a bomb or a bullet. They are infinitely more insidious, however, for this weapon preys upon our basest instinct, our greed. Much of the church has been seduced by Mammon's siren song. A modernist interpretations, quote-unquote, have played their pivotal part in this mass deception utterly twisting the word of God into a sick mockery, now excusing everything from sodomy to usury. No man can serve two masters, and neither can a church or a civilization. Occult historian Michael A. Hoffman II echoes my own sentiments in this regard. Quote, If we desire Christian society, usury must be abolished. What is the use of calling for chastity while operating a prominent den of prostitution frequented by millions, and while absolving others of any sin in connection with its operation. One cannot campaign for biblical justice for the poor and laborers while operating a house of usury, or while absolving others of sin in connection with its operation. From Usury in Christendom. End quote. Either we will rectify this colossal error in our collective judgment by returning to Christ's commandments, or we will consign our children and our grandchildren to yet another century of financial and spiritual debasement. Quote, A nature has established all things under the sun, a certain term and pitch, when they shall make stay of increase and when they shall be multiplying. The land, if it lack a jubilee, will in time grow heartless. Houses, if not repaired, will decay. Trees will stop bearing and cattle breeding when they grow old. Men's labor and skill will fail with the passing of years. Only the usurer's money doth multiply infinitely. And this is not unnatural? Roger Turner, The Usurer's Plea Answered. End quote. <laughs>